Here's a few words with Adam McFadden of Firehouse Training. Hey, Adam. Hey, Scott. How are you tonight? Good. Good, my friend. Why don't you let me know how things ended up for you last month? Yeah, last month was pretty good. We had firefighters from all over North America join us for our fire service elevator rescue operations and awareness training course. I had the opportunity with uh, myself and a couple of co-instructors to do an overview of some elevator safety for emergency services. I reviewed some fire department standard operating procedures, you know, various things that you'd run into in a mid-rise or high-rise building, such as drop key and door opening access, even a review of some elevator mechanical room, lockout procedures, and some basic technical rescue familiarization. Received some great feedback. We had firefighters from as far as Florida, Texas, Chicago, and even some from Michigan join us for that Zoom virtual training session. So uh, looking forward to having them out again for some future events. Awesome. And what do you have on tap for the next month? We're going to have a busy week ahead this Saturday, January 23rd. We're running Canada's largest virtual hiring and recruitment workshop. This event is geared towards aspiring firefighters and those looking to get hired in the emergency services. Some of the different things that we're going to cover will include some mock interview preparation tips and tactics, some resume and cover letter preparation techniques, as well as some aptitude test tutoring. We're also going to have some guest speakers joining us. We have a fire chief from Texas, a couple industry professionals, fire chiefs in the GTA, as well as some fire protection technicians. Looking forward to having them come out and speak to some of the aspiring firefighters. The minimal recruitments that are taking place right now, we're just asking candidates that are looking to get hired to continue to keep their heads down, study hard, make their resumes as best as they can. So as things start to open up later in the winter or early in the spring, we should see a surge in hiring for firefighters, not only here in Ontario, but across Canada. Hopefully a lot of the candidates will be able to take some of the value that comes from attending this workshop, hearing from other industry professionals on really what it takes to not only be a firefighter, but also work in the fire protection industry as well. Some of the other things we have coming up in February, we're going to be running our Trench Rescue Awareness for the Emergency Services course. That takes place on Sunday, February 14th from 9 until 1. And again, with the current pandemic, we're going to be running a lot of those courses virtually via our Zoom platform. That Trench Rescue course is going to cover various topics, uh, such as roles and responsibilities of a fire department on scene. We'll be reviewing various rescue considerations and doing an overview of protective systems and shoring soil classifications, and common site hazards that you might find in a technical rescue situation. And again, all of our training here at Firehouse Training is to the NFPA standard, as well as industry best practices, such as Ministry of Labor guidelines and health and safety initiatives. So if anyone's interested in signing up for that, they can find that on our website at firehosetraining.ca, or even check us out on our Instagram at Firehouse Training. We've received some good feedback in the past from that course. Another event that we plan on running in February is our spill response training program. This program is going to cover basic chemical spill response. We'll be looking at various chemical detection techniques and tactics and scene and size up for hazmat incidents. We will have a couple of guest instructors joining us from not only the fire service, but also the spill response industry to offer their two cents on the safest and best ways to respond to hazardous materials emergencies. So some of the different topics that we'll cover in that training program will include railway emergencies, manufacturing facilities, and also roadway emergencies. Mitigation and control tactics for various chemicals and materials. We'll be discussing some incident command and managing the hazmat incident, as well as other decontamination techniques, not only in awareness level or operations level and technician level firefighter could use, but even while working with those uh, alongside us in the spill response industry and other mutual aid, such as police and, uh, and local municipalities.
Sounds like another busy month. Is there anything else that candidates can be doing during this time leading up to departments opening up to get themselves ready? I think right now during the various lockdowns and in the transitional period that we're having during the pandemic, aspiring firefighters and candidates should really look at taking various online training programs. Uh, we do offer quite a few here at Firehose Training. Uh, but not only that, look to refresh and revise the resume and cover letter. Take a look at the key things that fire departments are looking for in today's candidates, such as backgrounds in fire safety, fire protection, leadership, and mental health. Also take the time to continue to study, review your written aptitude test material, and get ready for the next fire department test. Panel interview coaching is always important in going out and trying to maximize the type of questions that you might hear in an interview panel. Focus on building a good question and answer sheet so you're better prepared for the questions that might be asked in a fire service interview. Continue to learn, continue to read, and do more research on the particular fire department that they're looking to get hired from. Welcome to episode 32 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Psychology Today defines groupthink as a phenomenon that occurs when a group of well-intentioned people makes irrational or non-optimal decisions, spurred by the urge to conform or the belief that dissent is impossible. The problematic or premature consensus that is characteristic of groupthink may be fueled by a particular agenda or it may be due to group members valuing harmony and coherence above critical thought. It's crucial here not to confuse tradition with groupthink. Traditions are history that has stood the test of time and objection. They are the shoulders of the giants that we stand upon. As Jonah Goldberg said, cultures grow on the vine of tradition. What groupthink and tradition do have in common is that they can and should be challenged by critical thinking which seeks to use an unbiased approach to analyze and offer alternative perspectives. Groupthink fears this, while tradition should welcome it in. Tradition carries forward what still proves to hold true and is effective for those that adhere to them. They adapt and they overcome, bringing the best of history forward to the future. Tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire. Gustav Mahler My guest this episode has recognized his need and desire to approach the world and his journey through it with different perspectives, and has been able to respectfully manifest new ways of thinking within a fire service steeped in tradition to the benefit of everyone. It's my pleasure to bring you Aaron Quinn. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? It's going well, man. Thanks. Good, good. I'm glad we're finally able to make this happen. Me too. Why don't we kick things off by learning about your family and your upbringing? Sure. So I was born in Milwaukee. My parents were blue-collar workers. My dad was a factory worker in Milwaukee. My mom was getting a teaching credential. Once my mom finished and they had my sister, my dad's factory closed, and they decided to move to California. And they moved across the country with $2,000 in their pocket and everything in the U-Haul to Oakland, California. And that's pretty much where I've lived for the rest of my life. My parents raised me here in Oakland. They still live here in Oakland. I still live here in Oakland. I've worked for Oakland since I was 15 years old. 
as a city employee in various capacities. And uh, that's kind of my upbringing in a nutshell, quick and dirty. So what was the reason that your parents chose Oakland? Ah, so they were real active in the anti-war movement and uh, civil rights movement, and they wanted to raise their kids in a more open, culturally diverse area than Milwaukee. And they had friends who lived in San Francisco and also in Oakland. And so they decided to throw the dart and it landed on Oakland. And that's kind of how we started off here. And we fell in love with the city. We've been here ever since. And you guys were struggling early on? Absolutely. So my dad, you know, he was a factory worker and the various factories here around Oakland were closing and the factories in Emeryville, which is a bordering city here in Oakland, they were closing. He'd get a job. Things would be okay for a while. Factory would close. They lay him off. It was the 80s when all that industry was really moving out of here. And my mom got a teaching job in Oakland. And Oakland, of course, uh, teachers went on strike. So times were a little bit rough. And me and my sister shared the room. Parents lived in the living room. And one day, my parents were talking and they said, this is it. If we can't make it here in the next couple of months, we're going to have to move back to Milwaukee. The Oakland Fire Department was giving a test. This is back in 84. And at the time, all you needed was a high school diploma and a CPR card. And a CPR card takes you know a weekend. So my dad decided that he would go to local firehouse, ask them about the job, find out about it. That was uh, Station 4 in what we kind of call New Chinatown in Oakland. He walked in there, talked to a few guys. They told him to take a test. He took the test, and one thing led to the next. And by 1986, he was a firefighter in Oakland. And that kind of saved our family from poverty, to be quite frank. You know, we were on food stamps before that, just struggling to make it. And we went from that reality to two-bedroom apartment, to a house, to me going to private school, to going on vacations. So at the fire department early on, I saw how it really provided on a family aspect and allowed our family to survive and actually thrive. Did he bring you around the hall a lot? Oh, all the time. So back when my dad was a firefighter, before you know computers were really big and no one had direct deposit. So every other Thursday was payday. And it was kind of like a holiday in the firehouse. Checks came out about noon or one, and everyone would come to the firehouse. And they would come into the firehouse where they worked at, and they'd hang out, and the checks would come, and they'd BS, drink coffee. There always were donuts or cake or some kind of treat, you know? And it was a real fun time. So every day, you'd pick us up from school on Thursdays, and we'd go to the firehouse. We'd hang out there for a couple hours. Uh, so that was pretty routine. Of course, the holidays, we went by the firehouse as well for the holidays. So I kind of grew up in the firehouse. And what was your school experience like? Uh, it was challenging. When I started off in elementary school, in kindergarten, I wasn't really reading, couldn't recognize my own name. My mom was a school teacher, so she quickly recognized that there's a learning disability there. And I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was in first grade. And I didn't really learn to read or spell until about third grade. And it's still challenging for me. But I struggled through school all the way up to about high school. And then at one point in high school, I don't know, things just clicked. And I went from uh, pretty much a C student to a straight A student and finished out my high school career with honors. Did you move on to secondary education? Did you college or university? No, I did a few years of junior college when I was playing water polo and it didn't settle well for me. I wasn't really where I wanted to go with my life. My dad never went to college. So I think I saw him and he's extremely smart, well-read, very academic. But college was never one of those things that my parents said you had to do, right? They never thought you had to do college to be successful in life. And they were just real big on always working hard and staying active and learning. So it really wasn't for me. And I kind of walked away from it, dropped out, I guess, after a semester of junior college. And that was the last formal education that I ever had. Were you a pretty athletic kid? Did you have any hobbies? 
Yeah, I started off swimming, real hardcore swimming when I was 12. Before that, like any other kid that generation, just after school was playtime and in the summertime was all outside and you just run around and cause trouble in the neighborhood and ride the bus and get in trouble. But when I was 12, I happened into swimming. I was waiting outside the public pool on those hot days, waiting for it to open. And the swim coach walked out and looked at me and said, you need to be on the swim team. That was always his claim to fame that he picked me out dry. He said, <laughs> he became one of my first mentors outside of my parents. Uh, that's a different story, though. But yeah, swimming was kind of my heart and soul. It was the first thing that I, I was really good at. You know, I wasn't good at school. I struggled at school. And like I said, the teachers, they, they were kind to me. They didn't hold me back. They probably should have. So there was no success there in school at that age. And so it was the very first thing I was really good at. And I started 12, 13, 14, practicing four times, five times a week. By the time I was in junior high school and high school, it was eight practices a week, you know, three mornings, five afternoons, meets on the weekends. In high school, I started playing water polo and swam. And that's pretty much how I grew up as far as through high school. After that, I dropped out of swimming kind of lost my love for it a little bit, but I never really lost the love for athletics and training and working. You lifeguarded as your first job? First job was at 15. I started lifeguarding for the city of Oakland. It was a job you could get at that time, paid pretty decent, and you could work in the summer. And because I lived in Oakland, I also was able to work on the weekends. Sunday was pretty much an only free day. So I was able to work throughout the year on Sunday and made a little extra money for myself. But that was the first job I got. It was a great job. It's still, to this day, in some ways, might rival the fire department <laughs> as far as just pure enjoyment and being involved with the community and teaching some lessons and hanging out with the kids. And it was a very fun time, very fond memories of that job. And that group that really accepted you. Yeah, absolutely. When you grow up and you have your peers and your friends you always known and you kind of like hang out with them, but to have a group of people who don't look like you, who have different upbringings than you, from all different age brackets, people in college, people not in college, people who are in their 20s and 30s who are lifeguards, and having all of them kind of accept you and look after you like a little brother, that was a pretty important piece of who I am today. And you have a bartender to thank for meeting your wife? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So I had terrible acne growing up. And of course, uh, you know, I was that little pimply kid in the back of the classroom who no one talked to and people made fun of. You know, I never even kissed a girl, talked to a girl when I date until well after high school. And so I had all those self-image issues and wasn't very confident, didn't know how to talk to ladies. And I started bar backing when I was 18. And this bartender took me under his wing and just kind of taught me all the ins and outs and kind of boosted up my self-confidence and explained, for lack of a better word, the game. And it was because of that that I was able to land my wife. It took a lot of finagling. I had to chase her for a while. Talk to me a bit about motivation and how that's manifested in your life. Were you always internally motivated or did you have to get inspired from other people? It's hard to distill that because my parents were Midwestern blue collar work ethic. So for them, the motivation is you always do a good job. You always do the best you can. doesn't matter if you're successful or not. You always give it your all. And so who's to say if that's just who I am or if it's because I was just born in that kind of environment with the family that that kind of became who I was, right? But I've always been motivated. I've always done the absolute best I can. When I was bartending, I realized that if I showed up at six when the shift started and if we were busy, I'd be behind the eight ball the entire time. I couldn't catch up and stock the bar and get everything you needed and keep it clean. So I always drove up to work an hour early and I never once put it on my time card and I never once asked for money for that. And I never forget a manager walked up to me one day and said, you know, we're not going to pay you for this extra hour. I was like, I know, it's okay. And that's just the way I am. I still show up to work early. 
I always try to give extra. I always try to give back. And it's always paid huge dividends for me. Uh, Yes, I've always been motivated internally beyond where most people are at. Being exposed to the fire service most of your life, was it always something you wanted to do? Or when did that finally click for you? I was somewhat hesitant. I had some reservations about the fire service. You know, I saw what good economic impact it had for our family. But growing up as a kid, I also saw the downsides of it from a kid's lens. My dad, he, you know, he struggled with anger at times. He struggled with drinking. He was gone a lot. There's realities of the job that from a kid's standpoint, you grew up seeing. And I wasn't quite sure if that's the life I wanted for myself. And I'll never forget, it was a friend of mine who's a firefighter in a different agency. And he's probably one of my best friends talking to him about the test, if I was going to take it or not. And he kind of sat me down and said, look, man, your dad's story is not going to be your story. You can change that. And this is a job you need to do. Kind of talked me into it. And that was it from there. Once I made it in my mind, I gave my all like anything and got hired my first test, which was pretty lucky. Walk me through how you prep for your interview. For Oakland, and I'm sure every city is different and things have changed a lot. And If you have new guys listening, uh, some of the stuff I'll give you is just universal. Other stuff is maybe unique. For us at the time, the interview was 100% of your score. So the written test and the physical uh, at that point, it was, it was their own physical agility. We've since moved to CPAP, which is a joke of a test. So I knew I just had to pass those. So I really focused on the interview. And what people have a hard time with is you walk in the door and at first you think, I don't have all these things. I don't have a fire cert class. I don't have this, this. I've been a firefighter here. And really what these people want to hear is they want to hear about who you are as a person. They want to know your decision-making process. And they want to know if they can work with you. They want to know if they can rely on you. If there's a citizen on the board. They want to know if you can come to their house. We can teach people to be firefighters. We can't teach people to be solid people, good human beings. By the time you get in the fire service, a lot of your adult patterning is already programmed. And so really what I focus on is who I was as a person. Even at 21, what have I learned? What can I bring? Those are the things you really focus on. And in the interview, I went in there and I, I just talked to him about my love for the city of Oakland. I think people miss that point. You know, whatever city you're testing for, you have to make a connection to that city. You have to make them believe that this is not just another test, that you really want to work in this city. That you have a heartfelt connection to the people that you're going to be asked to serve. And that was obviously easy for me from Oakland, but that's a key point when people are taking interviews. Another thing is, I believe any job that you do can tie back into the job of the fire service. You know, I tied bartending at the time back into the fire service. I remember saying that. I say, I, I, I bartend, and I think this is a great advantage to, to being a firefighter. And the board stopped and looked at me and I said, you know, I work long hours at night. I have to keep many things in my mind. I have to keep an organized list. The list is always changing, always evolving. In that list, I have to figure out if something that I can do, if a manager has to do it, if my barback can do it, if it's super important, not important, if we have it, if we don't have it, if we're out of it. This whole time, this thing's going on in my head is constantly reorganizing. I also have to stay pleasant and polite and be able to look at customers and be kind, even if they're not being kind to me. And this is a lot of what we deal with in the fire service. We have to keep organized lists in our head. They have to change. They have to get reorganized. They have to realize if I can do it or if someone else can do it. If I tell the chief or don't tell the chief, it's not the same magnitude, but it's the same thought process. And so these are the things I think people miss is that if you sit back and make an inventory of your life, you can really see that anything that you're doing in your life prior to the fire service can really lend to becoming an awesome firefighter. You just have to make those connections. You visited a lot of different fire stations. So tell me about going around and doing that. Every fire station I could bring them some ice cream or some donuts. And I'd call them and I'd say, hey, I'm so-and-so. I would love to come by and talk to you guys if you have time. 
And some say no, some say yes. And you walk in the door and you say, I'm trying to be a firefighter here in the city. My name is Aaron Quinn. I would love any advice you guys can give me. And sit down with a notepad and they ask you some questions. They give you some advice. And what my goal was to try to distill what they felt were the key points to be successful at the job of a firefighter and then talk about those key points. They hammered the connection to the city. They hammered work ethic. They hammered being kind. They hammered giving back. So when you go visit these firehouses, you talk to firefighters, they might poke some shots at you, but just the fact that showing up, is going to show them that you're interested and they're going to give you little nuggets of information. And if you write those down and you keep talking to more and more, you'll compile a list of these commonalities. And then when you go in there to that interview panel and they ask you what you've done to prepare to be a firefighter in the city, well, I've visited almost every firehouse on multiple shifts. And you know, it's really interesting to me that every firehouse I called, they were willing to talk to me. They took their time out of their day to be kind and to invest in me. And they don't even know me. And that speaks to the character of who you guys hire. And I want to be a part of that. The firefighters, they all talked about work ethic. You know, here's a place in my life where my work ethic has shown through. I talked about my school career and how I didn't have any success. and I would do hours and hours of homework and nothing. And finally, something clicked and I'll bring that same work ethic in. So that's the advantage of visiting these firehouses. It's not just to get your face seen and hopefully one of those guys is on your board. It's not just because that's something to do. There's a point to it. And the point to it is to understand that department and build draw connections to it. You told me you were walking around the pool nonstop, just talking to yourself and practicing questions. Yep, absolutely. To get this job, you need to give everything you got, you know, and spend every spare minute you can practicing. For lap swim, the swimmers are swimming laps. I had to be out on the deck. I could walk around the pool deck. So I'd walk around the pool deck and I would just go over and over and over my answers. Why do you want to be a firefighter in Oakland? What can you bring to the city of Oakland? Conflicting orders to answers. You know, any question I could find, any question that went by the firehouse, I said, hey, you know what? Think about this question. What if you're on a medical call and your officer and the patient are getting in a fight? What would you do? Oh, shit. Let me think about that one. And I would just go over and over and over the answers. And I would keep saying them and saying them and saying them. And then when I was bartending behind the bar, we had regulars, of course, and they all knew I was testing. And when I had time, I wasn't busy. They'd ask me, hey, tell me why you're a firefighter. And it was a game. I'd tell my latest answer. And they would be like, oh, it's great. Or, you know, nah, that wasn't as good as last week. Or, you know, that wasn't as good as yesterday. You know what? Change that. Hey, what about this? And so it became a very communal event for me, which I think in a lot of ways is the way it should be. You met a senior officer on your station tours that gave you some pointed advice. Tell me what he had to say. Oh, yeah. So I went by a hill station. And in Oakland, the hill stations are considered like the slow stations. This is like where the quote unquote turds go to rest or you're broken or you put your time in the flats and you have 25, 30 years in the job and you're going up there to kind of have your last few years. It's very slow. And I was going to talk to this officer up there and my dad was like, ah, he's not much of a firefighter, but you have to be your own person, right? I can't live my dad's career and he has his own reasons why he judges people. I'm going to go talk to anyone who's going to talk to me. And he didn't really say anything particular as far as like the department. He just looked at me and said, man, don't listen to any of these motherfuckers. You can do this. You have everything you need to succeed. It's the ninth round. You're down on points. You're going to lose the fight if you don't knock them out. So you got to walk in there and you swing as hard as you can. It was just very motivational. He was the first person that talked to me and said, no, you can do this, man. Because at the time, people looked at me like, you know what? I'm going to tell you right now, it's the city of Oakland. You're not a medic. It's your first test. You probably won't get hired. Even my dad, take this test, it's good practice, but you're probably looking at a five, 10 year process before you get hired. Your own dad tells you this, right? And so you start to believe that everyone tells you that. 
And it's all bullshit. If you want the job, you can go do it. You just got to put the effort in. He was the first person to look me in the eye and tell me that, no, you know what? Don't listen to those motherfuckers. You go do what you need to do. You can do this. And sometimes all it takes is one person believing in you, right? And I think that changed the course of my life, just that short conversation. The first test, you know, I said, I just got lucky. Oakland, like any city, really wants to hire people from that city. And Oakland's a pretty unique city, pretty interesting dynamic. And if you haven't grown up in the city, it can be hard to navigate. And I was one of the last people to go. It was two weeks of interview boards. So the interview board, they were exhausted of hearing candidates. And I was talking to one of the chiefs who was on the board after the fact. He said, man, we were just saying that day, we want someone who grew up in the city. Just please, one person walk through this board that has some connection to the city. And I walked in, I was 21. So I didn't have a lot to offer as far as like life experience. And I knew that the one shot I had to get hired was to really harp on the fact that not only did I grew up in the city, I still live in the city and I've worked for the city and I love the city. And so I just banged on that point and they loved it. What was the journey like? Walk me through from that first test to being on the job and those first years. By the time I got hired, I was 22. I was the youngest person in my academy. And the academy in some ways was like other academies. In other ways, it was very different. It was only three months. Oakland's mentality at that point was get them out as soon as possible. They'll get their experience out on the fire ground. So our academy is pretty simple. It was basically you line up for roll call. They look you up and down. They ask you a bunch of questions. They find stuff wrong. They can do push-ups and run tower, yell at you. And then you do housework for about a half hour. They always find something that's not clean. Again, more yelling, more push-ups, more tower runs. And then after that, it was pretty much hose and ladder all day. Very little classroom time. Again, Oakland at that point was a little more older in their philosophies. So very little classroom time, just all out in the yard. And personally, I loved it. I loved being out, pulling hose and throwing ladder all day. I actually thought the academy was kind of fun. I know that's not everyone's experience, but I really enjoyed it. And then I stepped out on probation. And probation for me was the whirlwind. It was 12 months. My first day was at one of the busiest stations. My first shift, I walked in the door. And of course, you know, I'm a firefighter's kid. Everyone knows me. They've seen me grow up. So already they're waiting for me. And it was just a onslaught of everything you can imagine came my way. But I'll never forget, I walked in the door and the captain who was there ended up teaching me a ton. He was like the old school captain that you would picture. He was still in shape, massive guy, multiple tours in Vietnam, ex-army ranger, just this guy who's got a resume list a mile long. And he looked at me and basically kind of gave me the rundown of what he expected. And then he said, well, okay, time for you to go to the kitchen and take your beating like a man. And that's kind of how it started. I had two fires my first day. On my second shift, I had a shooting and codes and stabbings. That was kind of like being shot out of a cannon. That was kind of my probationary period. From that point on, I ended up landing at that station for my first permit assignment. I was there for seven years. Still probably learned more in those seven years from that crew than I've learned in my entire career. And about 2007... So about five years in, I got tapped to take over the head of physical training for all the new recruits. And I've been doing that ever since. That's over 13 years. I've trained over half our department, so just under 300 people. I'm still a firefighter. Love the job of firefighting. Don't know if I'll promote. That's where I'm at now. Do you pass on any similarly framed motivation to the guys when you're doing PT? I know they're already on the job, but what's your style with them? You know, I view PT really as a means of spiritual growth. It's very different from most PT programs that people would probably think they would get into a tower. I've had many recruits that have come from other towers and they're like, man, this is not at all what I expected. And day one, I sit them down and the first thing I tell them is better people make better firefighters. And so my goal is not to make you a better firefighter, to make you a better person. Regardless of what happens if you make it to the academy or not, we're making you a better person. And so everything we do when it comes to PT, it's all centered around the growth of the person. 
when you step on this PT ground, this is 630 in the morning, you need to figure out the one thing you're trying to let go of or shed that you're not happy about. It could be a personal thing. It could be something from the fire ground. And then you need to answer one thing of who you want to become. What is it inside yourself that you want to find? Because I believe inside every one of us, we have what we want to find. We just have to look for it. And so if you enter into a PT with that intention of letting something go and finding something within yourself, that's going to change the very basis of who you are. And it's very different style. And it doesn't mean I don't yell. It doesn't mean I'm not in there, but find out who you are. You can do this. Who do you want to become? What are you leaving behind? Don't let me see quit in your face. I got to see belief in your face. You got to believe this. It's all centered around trying to make them understand what they can become. Is this what eventually prompted and manifested into the Live, Serve, Thrive project? Yeah. So I was doing the PT for years and people kept asking me and saying, Hey man, what do you do after this? What do I do after this? And I never had an answer for them. Yeah. I don't have a gym of my own. I don't coach individually, but people kept asking for more. And finally my wife and my oldest daughter were like, Hey, you should do social media. And I'm still not huge on social media, but just post what you do, post what you tell the recruits, post what you teach them. And that's kind of what started this Live, Serve, Thrive. And that's what I do. I just post what I teach them. I post what I do for my workouts, what they do for their workouts. It's growing. It's growing slowly, but it's growing. So you mentioned that because of your dyslexia, you could never see things the same as everyone else and the world not being made for people like you. So you finding another way. How has that played a piece? In everything you do. Imagine being a kid and sitting in school and every other kid's able to read and you're looking at this stuff and you can't figure it out. I wasn't really able to discern lyrics and music until I was probably 10. I didn't really understand that there was actually words in music. So I think when you grow up that way, it just shifts your whole mindset. You always have to find a different way to do things. You always have to view things in different lenses. You have to stay positive in the face of people telling you that you're not this or not that. So that changes your very psyche. So when I come in, I look at a PT program. I'm not looking at it from the same lens as everyone else because everyone else may have had a very common upbringing. But it's never been that way for me. So everything I look at, I don't have a more articulate way to truly state that other than sometimes when something's baked into you for so long, it just becomes a piece of who you are. What's the response been in general to the project? Have you been surprised by it? Yeah, it's very positive. At first, you know, you had some of the old timers who were salty. We thought I was doing it to get promoted and they would talk shit to me. But then over the years and years of doing it and never promoting, um, and as more and more of the people who are in our department have gone through my program, there's more and more outreach, more and more people ask me questions, more and more people come to me. You know, I've gotten a few messages that are pretty earth shattering. People saying that they were in a real bad spot and thought about hurting themselves. And because of something I said or something I taught them, they've decided to do differently. So those things are pretty impactful. You only get a few of those messages from time to time, but those really do resonate. So yeah, it's been pretty positive all around. Have you struggled personally with any physical or mental setbacks due to working in the service? I think everyone does. I don't know if you can do this job or not. I've had two bulge discs in my back, spinal stenosis, had knee surgery, had neck issues as far as the physical side. Emotionally, yes. I think everyone's had different ways of dealing with it before my ways of dealing with it were like most people just go out and drink like crazy, get smashed and make an ass of yourself, call up the next day and make apologies. It's typical way firefighters deal with things in a lot of respects. I'm not certain that there's a way to do this job and not have mental scars. I don't necessarily know if it's a bad thing anymore to have those. I don't know if it's a process of get back to normal. I don't think there is a normal to get back to. I think it's how we look at them and frame them and deal with those and, and try to move forward 
and make meaning out of those. There's some things that are seem pretty meaningless, but if we can give them a purpose, um, I think that helps. I know that I'm a much better mental space now than I ever was before. That's what I'm trying to help people realize is that something as simple as exercise, and this is an evolution for me, you know, when you go into the gym and you put your music on and it's angry music, and then you're in the gym and you're like, come on, you Sally, or come on, you pussy, lift this weight, or you're talking to yourself. You're just using all this negative language. This is just one example, but yeah, I see it all the time. And, you know, we can all fill in the colorful four-letter words that people say to themselves. And, and we see this as, yeah, this is how you get through a workout. This means you're working out hard, right? This is how you do it. Well, the problem is, is that when we do that, we're training our bodies and our minds and our psyches that whenever we're met with something challenging, whether it's physical or emotional, that we meet it with anger. We meet it with harshness and we meet it with breaking ourselves down. And that's just one example. Anger is a very expensive fuel and it's useful at times, but we have to be very careful. It's expensive fuel. And over the years, we're training our bodies to respond in this way to challenge. What if instead we meet challenge, you say, I got this, I can do this, or thank you. This is how I grow. I'm going to make it through this. I'm going to be better because of this. I'm going to find something inside of myself that's calmer and deeper. So next time I'll be able to handle this with more grace. These are hard things for people to say to themselves. Most people look at that and say, dude, really? Come on. But we have to remember that fitness is supposed to serve us to have a more healthy and happy life. Again, this is one example of how we can start to help ourselves mentally and physically and emotionally and have better mental health in the fire service. What I think when I hear you say that is it's hard to be calm when you're angry. So that'd be a fire ground tangent right there. You're met with a challenge. You need to be physically, mentally strong. And then you go to anger. Well, how can you be calm when you're angry? If all your training, you're working out and you use anger to get through your workouts, what's going to happen when you meet something physical on the fire ground? You're going to get angry at that door. You get angry at the hose pull, angry at the ladder throw. So now you're putting yourself into an angry place because that's the programming that your body's programmed to do. And so some of it starts, like anything, long before the fire ground. The battle of the game is won in the thousands of hours of training before. And so a lot of it is how we train initially so that our default mode is not anger. Our default is positive. Now, once we get into an angry space, is to use the breath and breathing to pull ourselves out. It's also the recognition that we are in an angry space and even the recognition of that can help pull us out of it. I'm sure even in an angry state of mind that the fine motor skills go, the more nuanced, detailed thinking goes, it becomes brute force mentally and physically. Absolutely. I'm sure you're familiar with the different tiers of movement patterns. And those closely relate to pulse rate. We know that anger increases pulse rate dramatically. And so if we're in that golden tier where we want to be, about 120 to 160 heart rate, about 140 would be ideal. We have pretty much all of our tiers of movement. We may have some high-level tier three movements that are lacking fine motor skills, but we have access to all our movement patterns. But as we get angry and our pulse rate rises, we lose some of those more complex movement patterns at tier three, tier two. And now we're left for tier one, which is the most basic movement patterns of squats, deadlifting, walking. So to your point, yeah, from angry, my heart rate's out of control. I can't think it's good. I can't think it's clear. I start getting tunnel vision. This is all stuff out of the book on combat, heavily about how pulse rate relates to our ability to process information. You mentioned when talking to me about the mental struggles that you struggle to connect with the quote unquote real world. Give me a rundown on that. Probably the best way to put it is it's a story that I heard another firefighter tell. He relates to the Garden of Eden, how everyone else is in the Garden of Eden and they kind of live in this bubble of what they think the world is. And you become a firefighter, first responder, a cop, all of a sudden, 
you see the underbelly of everything. And you step outside this Garden of Eden because you see how the world is. And it becomes very challenging to connect to people who, quote unquote, are in the normal world. It becomes very hard to talk to people who are talking to you about a cup of coffee or talking to you about, oh, I'm so tired because I only got six hours of sleep last night. Are you kidding me right now? Dude, I didn't sleep at all for the last two days. We had six runs after midnight every night going on just BS calls. What are you talking about? And so there begins to be this disconnect and your ability to really relate and just have compassion for the normal world really gets compromised. And this is a slow process for firefighters, I think, much faster for soldiers, very slow for firefighters. And I think it's because it's a slower process over the course of the years, it's less noticeable. And before you know it, you turn around and you only hang out with firefighters and you go to these kids' parties and you kind of stand in the corner, you're looking around like, I don't even want to talk anymore. I can't even deal with this. How did I get here? So it takes time to unwind that. It takes time to understand how to reconnect with people. What about the people closest to you, like your wife or your closest friends? Is there a way in each relationship that you've decided to dialogue about this or do you save it for your peers? How do you communicate with the people in your life? I think, you know, communication is a two-way street. So the people you're talking to, they have to have the ability to be able to hear and listen to. So some people in my life, we can't have those conversations. So for me, I don't talk about my job or those realities. I, you know, I try to connect to them on their level. But my wife is very able to listen and connect. So we talk about it. You know, we process it. I talk to my kids on a level they can understand. And they ask questions on a level that they can ask questions about. And it's a process. And I think in some respects, too, just understanding once you step out of the Garden of Eden, that's why I like this story so much, is you can't go back. We can't go back to this quote-unquote normal life. The civilian life, we can't go back to that. And there's a piece of us that's never going to be the same. One of the things that's really helped me is a realization that what we do is a gift to so many people. They can live in that bubble. They can live in that world. And they don't have to see what we see and do what we do. And that's my gift to them. And they may never even know the gift. They may never acknowledge the gift. They don't know the magnitude of the gift. But it doesn't lessen the gift. And it doesn't lessen my ability to connect to them. And I don't have to tell them about it either. Just like the military, right? There's people that fight wars, so the rest of us don't have to. Exactly. Have you witnessed other people struggle? Uh, my dad struggled tremendously. He was never violent towards us, but he definitely struggled with anger. And a lot of firefighters, they struggle in their own ways. Part of the problem is, is it hasn't been a dialogue. You know, mental health is not a dialogue in the firehouses yet. It's just starting to be a dialogue. But divorce after divorce after divorce. Kids that are disconnected, that don't talk to them. The alcoholism, it's a real problem in the fire service. It doesn't take much when you start actually sitting back at the kitchen table and watching. And you can see the disconnects and the pain that people are really in that we try to hide or cover up. In the face of all this, how do you cope and manage your stress? Exercise is one of them, but walk me through your pillars. I have four pillars that I talk about. I have connection, passion, strength, and information. And they also apply to the fire service. We have to develop connection. The first connection we have to develop is with ourselves. And this is an important one, a unique one for the fire service. Part of our job is to disconnect from our emotions when we're on calls. This is a necessity. We have to be able to disconnect from the emotional flow, the momentum of the moment to be able to function. And the problem is, is that over the years of doing this, our bodies don't understand that we only do this in the firehouse. We end up disconnecting from our emotions and from the excitement or sorrow in normal life. And, you know, I see this in myself. Sometimes my kids get really excited about something and you train yourself to try not to get excited when everyone else is excited. I don't show emotion. I can feel myself starting to shut down. And here's your kid who what they need to see is you being excited about them. 
And it's hard. And the reverse is true. When something bad happens, my son at two broke his arm and I just completely went into work mode. No emotion, no compassion. And that was terrifying to me. Here's my kid and he needs me to be compassionate for him and love him. And I'm just completely disconnected from him, 100% disconnected from him. And so building those connections with yourself, reconnecting with your emotions, reconnecting with your thought processes, that's the first piece that we need to try to develop. Passion, you know, keeping your passion for life, your excitement for life. And I really think that's rooted in just being creative and being explorative. Strength, strength is obviously a huge one, but I always try to tell people that I really believe that strength is rooted in surrender. That's a hard one, again, for a lot of firefighters, hard one for the Western culture to understand. But this is something I learned from jiu-jitsu and beyond the mats. The strongest guy in the gym is not the strongest guy on the mat. Because when they come in and they try to use their strength, you just surrender to it. Give it to their strength and you redirect it. And that's the same way it is in life. Strength is rooted in the acceptance and the surrender and the repositioning of angles. So understanding that is a huge piece to mental health. And then information. Our brains are hardwired to learn. I'm sure people on your podcast have heard of mirror neurons. These are neurons that they discovered that literally we learn movement by watching. Everything we do, our bodies and minds are constantly learning. And so if we're not cognizant of the information that we're putting in, we're not aware of what we're learning. Case in point, if you're on social media all the time, if you're in the firehouse and you're constantly in this negative mindset, F this, F that, if that's your constant informational input, then what do you expect that you're learning? You are learning those behaviors. So being very cognizant of what it is that you're watching, what it is that you're reading, what it is that you're eating, eating is also information. All of that plays into the mental health game. It's all information that our body's taking and processing and learning. Fitness, shifting how you view and how you move into your workouts is a huge one. The Wim Hof method, that's been hugely pivotal for me. And I think that's a huge piece that anyone can pick up. It's pretty simple. Yoga, and yoga is a big one. That also is really unifying and connecting. Those are probably some of the biggest ones. Nutrition, what we eat, how we eat, when we eat, and supplementation. I think those are probably some of the key things people need to really look at. What have you found works nutrition-wise for you? Uh, it shifts. Nutrition, we tend to get very dogmatic. People are like, I want to be paleo, or I want to be keto, or I want to be vegan or vegetarian. First thing is not to be dogmatic, to really step back and figure out what works for you personally. That's the first thing I always teach recruits. The second thing is there's a few pieces of nutrition that pretty much everyone agrees on. Organic food, I know this may sound far off for most people, but I'm a huge believer that organic food matters. Pretty much every nutritionist will agree to that. And outside of that, I would say getting food in its most natural, cleanest state, making sure you eat enough protein. I'm not saying you have to eat meat. All I'm saying is you need to be getting enough protein. It doesn't matter if you're vegan or vegetarian. They still believe that as well. And that's a building block to repair muscles. Personally, I'm eating less and less meat. My body doesn't process it as well as I get older. I still eat meat, but I try to eat the grass-fed, organic, free-range, obviously the best, highest quality I can. But I tend to only eat animal product once a day or once every other day. I tend to eat a lot of vegetables, a lot of nutritionally dense food, a lot of greens, a lot of beans, some nuts, eggs. I think eggs are really a superfood that has gotten a bad rap. As far as supplementation goes, you go down a long path of this. I try to teach people to go over the basics first. And actually, I'll probably back up after I talk about supplements to the very basic. But the very basic supplements that our body needs, the nutrients and minerals, vitamin B is shown to have all kinds of positive neurological effects. In fact, one treatment for depression is B12 injections. And that's medically prescribed. So they already acknowledge the power of vitamin Bs. Bs are water-soluble. We sweat them out. So any firefighter who's active is going to be probably B deficient. Uh, magnesium 
is a huge, it's easy to be magnesium deficient. Again, it's water soluble. It controls thousands of processes in our bodies. It's very easy to get magnesium in a supplement form. Outside of that, you can start getting in some more complex multivitamins and different things that can be a little more dependent on the individual. But I'm also a proponent of multivitamin. It's easy. You can get a big shotgun effect from that and cover a lot of bases. Uh, back up, the very first piece of nutrition that people don't talk about is water. Our bodies are mostly water. We should be consuming a ton of water, but we need to be consuming clean, filtered water. Try not to drink out of plastic bottles. That's a big no-no. I'm not saying that everyone has to believe this or this is everyone's way. This is my way. I filter my water. I make sure it's ionized. I make sure it's minimally dense. I try to always drink water that's also a little bit higher in the pH scale. So that's probably my basics there. Science all agrees that sugar is bad for you, the sugar and processed food. I don't believe sugar is bad per se. I'm not anti-fruit at all. But to your point, the processed sugar, the added sugar. Yeah, that's what I was referring to. Well, I mean, there's some people out there dieting who believe even fruit is bad for you. Wow. Yeah. You know, these are hardcore people that are hardcore into keto or hardcore into track their blood sugars and they make sure they don't spike at all. But with all that being said, if we can stick to, again, the natural way things are supposed to be, you'll be okay. But yeah, definitely processed sugars. Are there any calls that come to mind that you want to mention? There were a couple funny ones that you brought up. Yeah. So I was off probation and uh, probationary firefighters, if you get to ride the truck, you stick with the officer. You never really go to the roof until after the fire. So I got assigned to my first station. And again, these guys taught me everything I know about firefighting. But I'm tillering the truck. In Oakland, we don't have promoted drivers and tillers for the truck. It's just a firefighter. And most stations rotate the position. So I've been at the station for maybe about six months. And now I'm tillering. So I'm, I'm tilling behind the driver. And the driver and tiller go to the roof to cut the hole. And you know we pull out the barn. And you can see the column already. And so already I'm like, okay, this is it. This is like my first truck fire. This is my first going to the roof, cutting a hole. This is going to be it. And the guy driving, he's probably about... 300 pounds, Samoan guy, strong as an ox. Around the firehouse, he kind of ambles around. He has a little limp from sciatica. But you know, I heard stories about how good he was on a roof. So I'm, I'm like, well, here we go, right? He has 20 years in a time, so I should be okay. So we pull up this house and there's fire blowing out. He tells me to grab a 24. We have a 24 straight ladder. It's a one-person throw. So I grab a 24. I throw it up. He goes up first. He puts a ladder from the top. And I'm coming up the top. And my eyes must have been the size of spaceships at this time because he looked at me and laughed. And he said, okay, Quinn, listen to me. Step where I step. If I fall through, don't step there. <laughs> and he takes off and like the wind shifts and he's covered up in smoke and he's gone. And I'm sitting here on the roof and I can't see him. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Okay, well, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of your classmates once described his first fire in Oakland. Oh, yeah. So he came from another department and every department runs differently kind of determined on what you have personnel-wise, the culture, how much resources you have. Oakland is a very, I like to describe it as jazz music. You know, some departments like classical and that you know that no matter where you go, what station you go, everyone's going to play that tune the same way. If you're in this position, this is what you're doing. Oakland, again, is like jazz. It's played differently every time. And so he came from a department that's very regimented and he had like five years in. So he'd been to a few fires. You go to a fire, you pull up, you get off the rig, Everyone gets together. The officer gives the orders. Okay, you do this, you do that. I'm going to meet you here. And then everyone goes and does the thing. This is what he's used to. His first fire in Oakland, he's on the engine. And again, you can see the column and you're getting pumped. And so he's ready to go. He's thinking, okay, I'm going to get off the rig. I'm going to meet the officer in the front of the rig. And we're going to go over what we need to do. And he doesn't quite understand the fire ground speed that Oakland moves at. His gear is on. He said by the time he stepped off the rig, everyone was gone. The officer was gone. The other firefighter was gone. The engineer was gone. 
it wasn't the first engine on scene. So the engineer doesn't need to pump. The engineer is going to do work. And so he said, you're just standing around and every single person is working and no one's talking. And he's like, what the fuck do I do? He said he's literally stuck and he couldn't figure out what to do. And then someone grabbed him and said, hey, grab this line. We're going in. He said, oh, okay, fuck. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> like I said, we're a very aggressive department. We expect, we expect even a probationary getting out of tower. We give them very simple instructions, but we expect that the basic firefighter at a one, two alarm fire doesn't need to be told what to do. The officer should not have to say what to do. You should be able to figure out what you need to do and make adjustments. And know you're not going to get shit for making decisions and acting. Correct. Yeah. After that fire gave you some advice, what do you say to you? I hadn't had a fire yet. So I was like, oh, how, what was it like, man? He's like, you got to be fast. <laughs> Just fucking move. <laughs> you know, my dad was a downtown officer and he would tell his new kids, I want you behind me. When I turn around, I want you to bump into me. And he's like, because we're not going to wait. You know, that's the thing too, is if you're lagging, no one's going to wait for you. If you put your nozzle down, someone else is going to grab it. That's kind of the way it is. And tell me about, of in some respects, you either have it or you don't. Yeah, I think to some degree, we have this idea that we can turn anyone into a firefighter. And we can work with a lot of people. But at the end of the day, especially for our department, either you embrace that culture and you have it, you know, you want to get busy and you want to work and you want to be aggressive, or you don't have it. And what I've come to believe is there's a certain type of person and it's either inside of you and that's who you want to be. And we can foster that and kind of bring that out of you. Or some people just don't have it. Somebody just can't handle that type of work, that type of environment, that type of culture, that type of attitude. Tell me about the apartment building, pot in the stove, and the new kid. Yeah, so it's a great example of like either you have or you don't. So this is guy, and I'll back up the story a little bit. So I'm doing training at the tower. Here he is day one. He's a big fucking guy. He's 270, but looks like he's in shape. He can run. He's an ex-wrestler, wrestled at a pretty good junior college, and was going to get a scholarship to a D1 school and blew out his knee and like so many of us who are ex-athletes, either through injury or didn't quite make it all the way, right? We end up being firefighters. But just had a great respect for him and coaching him, seeing his work ethic and me being in jiu-jitsu, we used to always talk shit to each other because he's a wrestler and I had to talk shit to him. And it's good rapport. But he's on probation and there's a small pot on the stove on the fifth floor and my officer is with him that day and we're going up to the fifth floor and you can smell the pot on the stove. Not that big of a deal. So we get there and the door's locked and here he comes carrying the halligan and the irons. and so. Officer turns and says, hey, force this door. He looks at the officer. He sets the halligan and irons down against the wall. And then he literally just leaning into it, blows his door apart. A metal door with a metal frame just destroys his door. And the officer looks at him and says, well, that was pretty effective. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the way we operate. We don't really care how it gets done. We were at another fire and I'm getting my ass kicked on this two and a half. I know everyone says you can't pump a master stream and a handle at the same time, but sometimes you have to. So this fucking two and a half is hot. And I have a hose strap on. I'm getting my ass kicked on this thing, right? And I shut it down, moved it up a little bit. I'm there by myself. And here he comes. Hey, firefighter queen, can I give you a hand? I'm like, fuck, yeah, please. He grabs this thing while flowing and just walks with it. And I'm like, okay, well, there you go. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> The two and a half is like an inch and a half for him. Yeah. It's one of those surreal moments in a fire where like everything else kind of stops, you know, this person moving in slow motion, watching him like, well, there you go. Size matters. How are you self-critical and critical of others in a healthy and sustainable way? You've touched on it a bit, but maybe you can expand on it for me. It's kind of the same for other individuals or for myself. Being critical of yourself is very important in the fire service, you know, looking at what you could have done better. That's how we grow, right? And being honest about what went wrong so other people can learn from you. But the purpose of it should always be growth and learning. It should never be to tear yourself down. And I think oftentimes we as firefighters, 
myself included, we can wallow in our mistakes. We can really beat ourselves up too much. And so three questions, what went well? Very rarely did everything go wrong. And then what did we learn? And that's a place where you can be critical. What did you learn? And then the last question is, what are you going to do about it? So the what went well helps prime your mind to look for positives first. So we're trying to keep that positive mind state. And what did you learn? It keeps you in this growth mind state and learning denotes getting better in most people's mind. And that's important. And the last piece is training ourselves to be solution-based. How can I implement what I learned to become better? Also, for the newer guys, I try to keep things very simple for them. I tell them, hey, look, there's always something you look back you could have done better. But if you get a ladder up, you get to the roof and you cut a hole, you did your job. Could you have done better? Yes. Could you have had a better ladder throw? Maybe. Could you have cut a hole in a better spot? Maybe. Could have been faster? Maybe. That's all room for growth. And you'll always constantly be growing. You'll never get this job 100%. It's easy to be critical in hindsight. When you have to decide something in a matter of seconds and then go do that thing, you're going to make mistakes. That's normal. So I think some of that language really helps. And for you, jujitsu has really helped you frame this as well. Absolutely. You know, one of the things we see in jujitsu is there's no way to get better without sucking first, right? <laughs> um, I don't know if you've ever trained, but it's one of the more humbling endeavors that I've ever done. You have to always keep a mindset of learning, you know, because if you don't learn new moves or you don't learn defenses to new moves, you're going to get taken. You have to look at what you're doing wrong, but not in this mindset of like, oh, I'm messed up. I can't believe I did this. But no, like, how does this person get me? It becomes very analytical, right? You know, how do they sweep me? How do they submit me? I haven't seen that before. And then go and turn that person again knowing they probably won't show you what they did, but knowing it's going to happen again. And it might take you a hundred times of being swept or choked out this one way. But eventually, I'm going to figure it out. And I may figure it out in stages. You know, I may figure out one piece of it. And then that person makes the adjustment. Then I make an adjustment. And it's that mindset that I come to fire us with. It's a constant battle of growth and humility. And the only way to get better is to put yourself in those situations where you're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail. And that's a lot of jiu-jitsu's, that's one of his many influences in my life is that I've learned to see that in all aspects of life. And you mentioned to me about being critical of others. You sort of model the vulnerability and show them your own healthy, self-critical nature. Yeah. I try to be as open as possible when I make mistakes or what I could have done better. Be vulnerable about, yeah, that, that is a hard call. Yeah, it does suck. I do have feelings about that. You know, yeah, it is going to be hard to go home tomorrow. These are things that most firefighters don't say. Hey, kid, you're right. Good. Or, hey, rub some dirt in it. Or, that just happens. And sometimes we have this viewpoint, it's always just these horrific calls. But sometimes it's not horrific. Sometimes it's walking into that house at two in the morning, and there's cockroaches crawling on the ground everywhere, and there's little kids up with dirty diapers just wandering around the house at all hours of night. You know, and that can be hard. That can be a very challenging call because you see how people are living, and you see how hard it is, right? You see the tragedy unfold. So it doesn't have to be this call. It can just be like, man, that was really hard to see that stuff. And you'd be surprised at how many people start to pipe in. Yeah, you know, it was harder. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of this. It takes somebody to put their ego aside and say, man, that was really challenging. That was really hard. And you'd be surprised how many other people start to say, you know what, it was. And just that alone can be all that's needed to be said. And that can prevent another thing from building up inside. And as far as like being critical of myself on the fire ground, uh, you know, I, I have about four new guys that are on my crew that I'm training right now. And every time, I say, you know what? Let me walk you through from when I popped the air brake, what I did. And I walk them through what I did. And I say, this is what I could have done better. This is what I could have done better. This is a mistake here I made. This is what I could have done better here. So they see that even with my time, I still make mistakes. I still could be better. Because in their eyes, they can't see it yet. And it's the same thing back to jiu-jitsu. We talk to a good teacher who's a black belt. They'll tell you about the mistakes they make. You can't see them because their mistakes are so small. 
to you, perceivably, right? And when they start to explain to you all the mistakes they made, you're like, oh, wow, you're still making mistakes. You're still learning. And it humanizes it. Instead of being like, oh, someday, kid, you'll get it. Hey, kid, cut some holes and you'll learn. That doesn't help anyone. I'm not helping you get better with that. I'm not modeling what I want you to be doing. And you said your goal was to, and I really agree with this, is to make yourself obsolete or teach your way out of a job. Yes. In the fire service, we talk about leadership, but we train management and we promote management, at least in my department. We talk about we want people to be leaders, but what we really are teaching them to do and promoting people who are managers. And the real goal of the leader is to make yourself obsolete. If you're truly leading people, you're empowering them to hopefully become better than you. That's the goal. And if the people below me can be better than me and make me obsolete, then I did my job. Because sooner or later, I'm going to leave the fire profession. And if I don't give them that, right, then it's a loss. And when do we criticize in private and when do we criticize in public? Uh, there's all these variations of public and private. We talk to the crews sometimes together. What could we all done better? But I think in general, if it's just something that an individual did, that we need to talk to an individual about an individual action, that should generally be done in private with that individual. You can kind of use that philosophy going up. If it's a issue that happened at the fire ground, we had a fire a while ago and one of our chiefs, battalion chiefs that I very highly respect, one of our few really solid battalion chiefs that we have, we made a mistake. We missed a victim. And he pulled us all aside and talked to all of us. It wasn't publicly out loud. It wasn't yelling. But he talked to everyone because everyone was a mistake on that fire ground. And then he pulled some people around privately whose job that was and talked to them more and kind of broke it down to them more. So I think there's levels to it. But one of the things people don't realize is that when someone feels defensive, they're going to shut down and they're not going to be able to learn from it. We have to humanize mistakes because mistakes happen. And mistakes is also how we learn. And anytime we try new stuff or different stuff, we're going to make mistakes. But we also have to put someone in a place where they can learn from it. But they also understand that a mistake was made. And if you do that privately, outside of the eyes of everyone else, generally speaking, that can be heard better. The only caveat to that, I will say, is that in training with the recruits, there is some benefit to criticizing an individual or a group of individuals amongst the entire class. I think it is important for part of the realization of what the job is going to be, because there are going to be citizens out there who are going to be yelling at you and critiquing you and demeaning you sometimes even, and you need to be able to take that and keep moving. And so we can explain to the recruits why we do that. We can give them the background knowledge basis of, hey, we will do this at times. So they have the academic understanding. We need recruits to understand that they're working in emotionally charged environments. And they're going to hear things from people that are not pleasant, and they need to be able to stay positive and keep working through that. So I don't know if that answers your question. Absolutely. One of the things I've picked up from you from afar and now speaking with you is you've really melded what I would say, for lack of a better way to word it, the old school and the new school, carried forward the blue collar, more hard nosed work ethic, and then integrated more vulnerability, more spirituality, more life philosophy into your work. Is that fair to say? And what I want to ask you off of that is how common in your department is that? Uh, well, first of all, I really appreciate that. That's kind of my goal is to integrate those two worlds. Because I do believe there's value in the way the old timers used to do things. It produced me. So I think there's value in that. But I think that we need to maybe reframe it a little bit. So I do really appreciate that. Uh, I don't think that's very common at all. Back to what we talked about earlier, for my dyslexia, having to see things in different lights and trying to break things down and understand things in different ways. One of the things I commonly tell people about dyslexia is it's made different for every dyslexic, who knows. But most people read a word based on how it sounds and letters make certain sounds. That's how you read. 
So my kids read, my kids laugh at me. I read by memorization. I memorize how words look. And that's the only way I can read. So if you change the way the font looks, it jacks me all up. So I've always had to figure out a different way to view things, a different way to understand things. And so I think that thought process, when I was being trained in the old school way, automatically I'm trying to understand this from a different lens than most people are. And then too, I think in a large way, I was not necessarily happy with the way my life was going. And I saw some of the downsides of my dad and I figured there has to be a better way. We have to be able to do better for our people for our firefighters, brothers and sisters, we have to be able to give them more tools to help them, but also not lose what absolutely is a necessity for our job. We have to embody some of that old school fire mentality to be effective at our job. What are your thoughts on the brotherhood and family of the fire service? How is it today versus how it was when you first got on? Is it still alive? What can we do to keep it going? The brotherhood, sisterhood, let's see. In some respects, at its core, is still there. I think one of the challenges, I think is different for every department, and I'm not quite sure how it is for you, but I think the distance to which people live from our department hinders that to some degree. We work a twos and fours schedule, so there are people who live as far as, you know, six, seven hours away. So they're not going to be as able to come help. Now, with that being said, when a guy has a kid, very positive thing. We all pitch in and work trades, and no paybacks needed, right? Uh, heaven forbid, People's kids have died. People's houses have burned down the wildfires. We all pitch in money, time, resources, helping them rebuild, work for them for months on end so they can get their lives together, whatever they can get back together. I think it's still there. It's still there in a big way. It just is not as prevalent because not everyone lives as close as they used to live. I've been at work and something, of course, breaks at the house, right? It's always the way it is, right? It always breaks when you're gone, right? You know, I've called some guys that work in Oakland and they live in Oakland. I say, hey, man, can you swing by my house? I need you to look at this. Call my wife, say, hey, you know, so-and-so is going to come over. Okay, cool. And they go to the house, they look at it, maybe they even fix it. And I've done the same. So it's there. It's just a little bit different than it used to be. How has the size of your department changed? And is that an aspect of it too? The size hasn't changed dramatically since I've been hired. We lost a ton of resources, stations, rigs. When Prop 13 came through, we went from like five battalions down to three, I think. We lost number of engines, number of trucks, personnel. But for the most part, our union has been very strong and very able with foresight and some good political pressure and power to keep our staffing pretty much the same my entire career. Uh, so that's been really, really good. What we struggle with is our admin is largely non-sworn and non-union. So they've been gutted. And we're trying desperately to get that back up because you can't get much done when you have one person in training and two people in admin and one person dealing with rigs. So we're really trying to get that back. But overall, I think we've been pretty good on the suppression side of keeping staffing and personnel. What's your plan for promoting and moving up? Uh, the job of the officer doesn't really appeal to me too much. Again, every department is different. It's hard to say because I could be sitting here talking about not wanting to promote and people like, I don't understand. But in Oakland, again, like I'm at a double house. The driver of the truck and the tiller of the truck are not promoted and we rotate through. So I spend one month driving, one month tillering one month bird dog, which is like a catch-all kind of rescue, forceful entry. It's called bird dog because you're the officer's bird dog. You help the officer on the truck and then one month on the engine. So I rotate through those positions. So I get to drive, I get to tiller, I get to go to the roof. And in Oakland too, a firefighter is given a lot of freedom. In addition to that, I'm also the senior guy on my shift. And in Oakland, the senior guy is very well respected. So I basically run the entire day. I decide when we do housework. I decide what housework we do. I decide when we train. I decide when we shop. 
granted, it's a group decision, but they ask me and the officer doesn't have to do a lot of that. The officer handles all the paperwork and the ordering of supplies and making sure that we have the classes that we need. They do all the officer work. That's what we call it, officer work. And then there's firefighter work. So in some respects, uh, it's a little different than other departments. So there's not a lot of incentive for me to promote in that way. But I will say one of the areas that would motivate me to promote is at a certain point, I have to step aside so that people can step up, right? The guys under me are, are never going to evolve to a certain point if they always have a safety net. It's definitely something that I struggle with, whether promote or not. I don't know how that is going to play out. Do you agree with the process to promote? Is that part of it? Uh, we do it, I'm sure, like most people, we do a civil service test as a written test. There's a fire problem. There's a personnel problem. Then there's the interview. In general, I think the testing process does not promote the best fire ground and firehouse officer. People who have the classes do well in the test. And the test is not necessarily geared towards how we fight fire. The fire ground test, there's a lot of extra talking that you have to do. A lot of ICS stuff, a lot of setting up this command, that command, that division, that branch. That's not how we fight fire. The, the lieutenant is asked to do all kinds of crazy stuff in a fire problem that they would never do in our real world. The personnel problems are not real world, not how you'd handle it. So as far as that goes, I don't know if there's a better process. I'm sure there is a better process out there, but I think it's a flawed process. But that doesn't necessarily stop me from promoting. It's just a game you have to learn. Well, I'm sure you're not able to now if you do, but have you before? Or are you again going to travel at all for the project and teach outside the department? Yeah, so that's my goal. I'm in the process of trying to put together some type of training, mostly my philosophies of how to physically train recruits. And also, I do a lot of prehab exercises with the recruits, kind of backtracking a little bit, things that most people would think of post-injury. But I do a lot of those exercises pre-injury with the philosophy of trying to get left a bang, basically bang being the incident. Usually, we wait for the injury to happen, and then we start doing the exercises to strengthen the area instead of strengthening the area ahead of time. So kind of come with the idea of like, I'm not trying to change what you guys are doing. I'm trying to give people a few more tools, maybe change your insights of how to go about this in a more philosophical, spiritual way, and then giving you some tools with some yoga and some PT exercises to help strengthen the recruits so they don't necessarily break because we know our backs and our knees and our shoulders are weak points in the job that we end up getting injured. So how do we help prevent those injuries before they happen? I also teach the Wim Hof method stuff, which has been awesome. And that's kind of all on pause right now because of the COVID world. Lots of heavy breathing together. Yeah, kind of not the best thing to be doing. (laughs) Yeah. Your Instagram posts on mobility are fantastic. Oh, thank you. Did you pick a lot of that up through Supple Leopard? Was there somewhere where you got into that type of movement beyond yoga? Mm, So beyond yoga. Well, I think the jiu-jitsu world has a lot of movement that's similar to that. Uh, Supple Leopard, Kelly Starlet, I met him years ago at the CrossFit SF when it was outside in Conex boxes before he was famous. It's one of my claims to the fame that I actually met him once. <laughs> yeah, some of that stuff, some of the yoga stuff, some of it just working through injuries or aches and pains that I've had doing research and talking to other professionals. I have a couple PT, chiropractor, people that I talk to. I have another trainer that is a great friend of mine is really big into Z Health. I don't know if you have looked into Z Health, but I call that the voodoo of fitness. No, I haven't. So explain it to me. So the best way to explain it to you, they're really big into vestibular, so eye drills, balance drills, but they'll do stuff like, okay, your shoulder's tight, well, let's mobilize your ankle. And believe it or not, your shoulder gets looser. They're really big on the interconnectedness of the body. It's based down in LA, and they do, again, a lot of odd movement patterns, but I call it the voodoo stuff because you're doing this thing, you're thinking like, I'm not going to feel looser after this. And next thing you know, man, I feel great, way more mobility. Um, Gymnasticsbodies, gymnasticsbodies.com. It's a great website. They have 
all kinds of programs. Basically, he saw his gymnast getting injured and he built these programs for gymnasts, but they really increase flexibility and mobility. They use a lot of weighted stretching, which is very interesting, kind of with the idea that if we strengthen on the distal plane, we'll have more success in the proximal plane. A lot of it's just things I've learned throughout the years that have worked well for me through my injuries and aches and pains. Do you push weights at all? Were you ever a gym rat? Talk to me about that process and how you've changed training, maybe even through the decades. Yeah. So of course I came out of swimming and uh, swimming. We did some gym work. It was very basic old school gym work and probably the most weights I've pushed around. I, I got real big into CrossFit after I kind of fell out of swimming when I got into the fire service in about 2002, 2003. I believed it all and I bought it all and I went through to get my level one certification. And so I was real big into the O lifting. I uh, trained a while with a couple different O lifting coaches around here. And I kind of fell out of favor with CrossFit, not necessarily the philosophies, some of the core philosophies I think are really solid, but the whole thing of this makes you a better tactical athlete, which is a word that I despise anyway, but the whole thing, it didn't work for me. I've seen it time and time again. It didn't make me better than a fire ground. I was awesome for 15 minutes and then I sucked ass for the rest of the fire. Um, but yeah, I spent a lot of time lifting weights. I still lift weights. You know, I, I think there's a huge necessity to lift weights, especially for females. And this is one of the huge things that I harp on. If you're a woman and you're getting into your 40s, you absolutely have to lift weights. Guys, too, more important for women. Ligaments, the bone density, the muscle tension, these are all really important things to keep up. I tend now to lift less heavy and more for volume. It's a word that me and one of my buddies who is a trainer, we kind of call strength density. It's this philosophy that we need to have strength over a period of time. Think of something as being dense, very thick and hard, right? We need to have the strength over this course of time. And that grades better to the fire service than a one rep max. I don't necessarily need to be able to deadlift 405, but if I can do 225 or 185 20 times, that's going to be really useful for me. So what I lift tends to be real light or lighter and much higher rep. I'm really focusing on the form, and especially as you fatigue, you know, the magic's in the movement. I really believe in that. Probably squats and deads and pressing are probably my main lifting that and it cleans. Is your body weight work strictly yoga or do you do body weight workouts as well? Uh, the bodyweight work is mostly yoga and some other kind of Pilates-esque or gymnastics-type movements that I picked up from gymnastics bodies. But the bodyweight is mostly yoga. I try to tell people, like, we have this misperception of yoga in our culture is huge. It can be very, very challenging. And if any of your listeners want to try it out, on YouTube, uh, Live, Serve, Thrive, I have three free yoga flows. One of them in particular, it will shred your arms. You will be like, okay, I get it. I know animal flow is real big for a lot of people. I don't do a lot of it. Not because I don't think it's great. Most guys don't have time. At a certain point, you have to let go of some stuff. Yeah, if you did every single thing you're supposed to do for your mind and body every day, you wouldn't do anything but those things. <laughs> Amen. You know, one thing I do love, I love the Indian clubs, steel mace. I think those are great for opening up the shoulders and grip strength. I incorporate a lot of those in my training. Awesome. Let me uh, finish off with you with a few standard questions. Yeah, please. Shared dorms or separate rooms? Dorms all the way. I remember coming back from calls and laughing and just talking shit across the lockers. The amount of camaraderie you build is awesome in dorms. You mentioned deciding when the crew goes to shop. So I'm assuming you guys eat together? Yep. Every meal? Yeah, we eat two meals. Uh, we eat lunch and dinner. Breakfast is kind of people eat leftovers. Uh, you know, we have roll call and roll call. Uh, we do that in the kitchen. It's not as formal as some other departments roll call. So guys usually eat around then and we hang out. Not everyone eats breakfast, myself included, but lunch and dinner. I think that's hugely important. 
you can look at almost every spiritual tradition in the world and breaking bread together is a cornerstone of that. And I think there's a purpose to eating together and breaking bread together. It is hugely important to building camaraderie as well and connection. That's one of the things I've found that's been hardest over this period of time with the social distancing is that even when we eat together, we can't actually be close in proximity together now. We have to be spread out. I think I've adapted to pretty much everything else. We're used to wearing PPE. We're used to, you know, adapt and overcome. Yeah. But that sitting together closely at the kitchen table, I didn't realize... I always knew it was important, but I didn't realize how impactful it would be. Like, oh, now you're taking that away too. It's tough. It's a tough one. Every department faces it differently. What are your thoughts on rotating positions or know your role and stay in your lane? I know you mentioned that you rotate on a monthly basis, but give me your overall take on that. Well, I, you know, I see both sides. When I came in, it was kind of a transitionary period. There's a lot of stations that didn't rotate. A lot of crews didn't rotate. And then there were some that did. And there's still some that don't. And there's still some that do. It's not a department-wide thing. It's not even a house-wide thing. In our department, it's kind of shift by shift. Um, you know, I think the advantage to stay in your lane, your position, is you're really, really good at it. If you're a driver, you learn the district really well. You know where to spot the rigs. You know, you know how to get the air to roll up, what ladder throws you need. I mean, if you're tillering, you're really good at tillering behind that driver. And so, too, you don't have to talk anymore. If you're driving the engine, you get really good at that. You can really get in-depth part of the pitfalls and obviously i'll preface this by saying i am a proponent of rotation that you can kind of stale and rotating keeps you a little bit from getting stale it makes the entire crew stronger it does take time to get the younger members up to speed but when they do they can jump in any fill any position anything i need you to do if someone's got to get out you can drive if someone's got to get out you can drive the engine if someone's got to get out you can step up the front seat and act for a little bit you understand more of the roles of what's going on on the fire ground. If I spend time in the engine and go inside and fight a fire in the engine or on medical calls or extrications, I understand what the engine is doing. And vice versa, if I spend time in the truck, I understand what the truck's roles are. When you get new equipment in, if you haven't ridden the engine in 10 years and you have new equipment, new hoses, you may understand it on an intellectual level, but you don't understand it on an actual firefighting level on how to use those equipment. What are some pitfalls? What are the things that happen? When we switch from inch and a half to inch and three quarter hose, the hose kinks more. That's a huge issue. You can get more water flow, but also kinks like crazy. So that's a, something that you wouldn't know if you didn't rotate. So I think overall, the rotation builds a much more well-rounded player, so to speak, more well-rounded firefighter that has a more of a holistic understanding of the entire fire ground and can jump into any seat. Do you lead workouts with your crew? Do you guys ever work out together or is everyone doing their own thing? Uh, kind of depends. You know, actually, since COVID kind of hit, we've been working out more together. Just because none of us are doing any of our side activities. I got one guy to kickboxes. I do jiu-jitsu. A couple guys actually weight train. And a couple other guys are big runners. But COVID hit. All that stuff shut down. Now we don't do anything else besides just work out at work. That's the only gym that's open. So yeah, we tend to work out together. We build workouts together. I'm not the only one. Some people bring something in. Hey, try, let's try this. Let's try that. I think it's important. It's definitely a way to build camaraderie and build connection. So I think it's a good way to help build some rapport together. What's your take on the two and a half inch line? Is it interior, exterior, both? How do you guys perceive it? It's a hard question to answer because like I said before, we're kind of like jazz music. Everyone's going to play the game differently and we don't really care so much as you get the fire out, right? Some people in my own department view it differently. In general, I can say that the two and a half does not belong inside. Uh, it's mostly an exterior line. But with that being said, if you have a giant warehouse or a huge open office floor, you might have to bring that to an F inside a building. There are no absolutes, but in general, I think for your average house fire, apartment fire, the maneuverability of a smaller line will outweigh 
the extra water that you'll get out of the two and a half. Your ability to get in there, move it quickly, get it in place is more important than getting a bigger, heavier line with more water flow. The caveat being if even apartment fire, if, if I have a quarter of the apartments going on a floor, an inch to a quarter ain't gonna do nothing. Big fire, big water. So in that case, yeah, you gotta we might have to bring a two and a half inside. Right? There's no hard and fast rules. It's kind of hard for me to answer that question. That's the best way I can do that. You mentioned thinking like the watchouts in wildland firefighting. Explain to me what that is. Yeah, so the watchouts, there are these things that they talk about, things to watch out for. These aren't things that you can't do. They're just things that you need to be thinking about, like sleeping on the fire line or working in the green, working uphill from a fire. These are things that you should be like, we're doing something that's kind of not great, but we might have to do it. That's kind of like when I think line selection, when it comes to inch to quarter, inch and a half, whatever you use in two and a half, interior, exterior, you have to think like the watchouts. We can't say the two and a half never belongs inside, or it always belongs inside. Or for apartment fires, you always have to use the two and a half. We need to think about what's happening at the fire and what's going to be the best tool to put the fire out and understand what things we're doing that are dangerous and could get us hurt. And if we're doing those things that are dangerous and could get us hurt, that we understand why we're doing those things and we're doing them as safely as possible. So I think that comes into line placement and the philosophy of just because it's something that is dangerous or something that could be potentially dangerous doesn't mean we're not going to do it. It just means that we have to be cognizant of that. And so I think that kind of plays into the line selection. And I can't say never do this or always do this. What I can say is there's a time and a place for that. And sometimes a two and a half inside can be a really bad idea. It's really hard to maneuver that if you have a hoarder house or if you have a factory or a big warehouse and it's got a lot of shit in there and you can't get it around these corners. That's a big line to move. And so is that a caution? Is that a watch out? Yeah, it's a huge issue. If I can't get a line in place, what good am I doing? Does it mean we don't do it? No, maybe we get more guys. Maybe we find another way. Truck engine or rescue? Truck, all the way, on the roof, cutting holes. I will say being inside on the nozzle at a good working fire is a pretty amazing feeling. But it's few and far between when you actually get on the nozzle. It's in our department, whereas cutting a hole, if our basic box assignment is only one truck goes to a fire, three engines in a truck. Even for induced fires, four engines and two trucks. So generally, you're going to be on the roof cutting a hole. And I don't know about your listeners, but when you're on that roof and it's smoky as shit, you put a chainsaw in that roof and you're cutting it. And it's like an Etch-A-Sketch and there's just flames coming out that line. And you pop that hole and it shoots out. Man, it's a hell of a feeling. And you see the conditions get better. You know, the guys inside are like, man, you pop that hole. It's great. We get in deep. And in my career, I spent most of my time on the truck. And most of my time on the roof. And so that's what I know. Are you an acronyms guy? <laughs> I think I answered this one. No, <laughs> but I left it with an acronym, pun intended. Uh, you know, I think acronyms can be useful. I think we have too many of them in the fire service. Do you guys use Lunar or a PAC CAN report? Do you guys use those terms? Yep. Yeah. So take a Lunar report. You have all this information that you're trying to describe when this person is going to be in an emotionally, fearfully charged state. And it's like, dude, if I need help, this is who I am. This is where I think I am. Come fucking get me. I don't care what unit I'm assigned to. I don't care what my task was. Come fucking rescue my ass, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. We don't always think these things out. But you end up getting the point of, geez, like, what's that A for in that one? I don't know. When I came in the fire service, there wasn't a lot of acronyms. My officer told me about a size up was, you know, tell them what you got, what you're doing, if you have water, and what you need, and then go do it. Paint the picture, tell them if you have water, go put the fire out. There wasn't a lot of extra talking, and I think the acronyms, they can be hampering. But the acronym I left you with was KISS, right? Right. <laughs> Keep it simple, stupid, yeah, right. right? So is there not a lot of radio chatter on your jobs? It depends. The older chiefs, 
and officers, there can be very little radio chatter. Some of the newer chiefs that are really into the ICS system, they do a lot of talking. We're kind of in a transitional period. But I say in general, as compared to most departments, there's not a lot of chatter on the radio. Because again, I think it comes down to the fact that we really expect a firefighter to essentially be able to act as most departments' officers, like to make your own decisions, make your own moves, and we expect them to know what they do. We're talking about an average two-alarm fire. There isn't a lot of need for an officer to communicate anything. There isn't a lot of need for a chief to communicate objectives to the officers because everyone kind of knows what to do. A great example of this is we had a fire maybe about a year ago. It was kind of an abandoned old Victorian house. And it's blown out of two sides, but we're still going to make an interior attack. You know, we're still going to the roof. So I had a ladder, the roof, and my buddy was on the engine. He's pulling the hose line, getting ready to go through the front door. And all of a sudden, what turned out to be a settling tank blows. And this house goes from two sides to the entire two-story house just rolling out every single window, right? Blowing. And the chief was there, officers there. No one said anything on the radio. Everyone just transitioned. I threw the ladder to the exposure. The chief called for a second alarm. The firefighter on the nozzle. Pulled the nozzle back on the steps, dropped the nozzle, went to go get a two and a half because of the exposure problems. And now we're talking about containing this house. Not a single word needed to be said on the radio because it's expected that we make those decisions. So I think that cuts down a lot of radio traffic. Where can people find you if they want to reach out to you? The best place to find me is on Instagram at Live, Serve, Thrive. I also have a website and Facebook and YouTube, but I'm not really there that often. So Instagram, Live, Serve, Thrive, and now you can find me. Awesome, man. I'm glad we finally made this happen. Yeah, me too. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, you too. Thank you. It was great.